the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my own altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. What is the end of prayer? What's the purpose? Why do we pray? You might say, well, it's to communicate with God. That's good as far as it goes. Communication properly is talking, but also listening. That's more than just words. But what do we most often talk to God about? When you think about prayer, if what is it that drives you to prayer? Well, usually it's you have some kind of a need, something that you want from God. I've asked that question before. How do we know whether or not God has answered our prayers? And the first answer that tends to come is whether or not he did what I asked him to do. And if we're honest, far too often it's not even what we've asked him to do, but what we've told him he ought to do. Just how often, if someone is ill, do we not have in mind ourselves what it is that we want him to do? It may or may not be the best thing. Always worth going back and reading the story of the healing of the paralytic, the man who's lowered down before Jesus when he's teaching in the house, the man who so obviously needs a physical healing to get up off his bed. That's why his friends have brought him. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And Jesus instead speaks to the heart, speaks to the state of his soul. Son, your sins are forgiven you. The healing he really needs is quite different from what they expect. Yes, he does heal him physically, but remember in that story that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth, authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man. Get up, take your bed and walk. It was a sign of the authority to do what really needed to happen in that life. I don't think that it's we're not to bring our petitions to God. It's not that we aren't to open our hearts before him. But so easily we fall into the pagan state and not thoroughly Christian prayer. What do I mean by that? Well, the pagan relationship with the gods is that the deities are kind of capricious creatures. They're very fickle. And they're often driven by their passions, by their lusts, whatever. And what you look to do is to keep them happy, to satisfy them, to give them what they want so that at best they will bless you, at worst they at least won't kill you or cause you undue suffering. But the whole emphasis is on propitiation. You keep them happy. Now, I know propitiate gets into our vocabulary, and even in the comfortable words of the confession, we will hear of Christ as the propitiation for our sins. I'm not inclined to use the word because, for me, it always has that sense of, of satisfying, keeping somebody happy. And I don't think that that's our relationship with God. However, in Christ, all that is necessary is done, is satisfied, and the term isn't wrong. I just steer away from it usually because of that pagan sense that when we come in prayer, our prayers are not meant to be 
looking at how do we get God to do what we want? How do we get him to do our will? And this is a danger for for Catholics often in a way that it isn't for some Protestant Christians, because Catholics have a strong sense of the saints and the intercession of the saints. And so, you know, there are those times where you find yourself saying, ah, I'll go to Saint whomever, because he will give me what I want. (laughs) Isn't that the reputation he has? Now, don't misunderstand me on this one either. I'm not saying that if you've lost something, that St. Anthony is not a good one to invoke. But not simply because it's a way of assuring that you get your will, but that it's part of your entering into the act of prayer with the Lord. In fact, what I want to say is that this whole business of setting our petitions, opening our hearts, setting before God those earnest desires is not the end of prayer. It's the beginning of our prayers. And you begin in thanksgiving, you begin with praise, but you do set before God what's in your heart. You open it up. Because you do need to be honest before Him and the things you really need, you set before Him. But then you look to enter into, what does it mean to set these things in the context of His will? What is it to wrestle with Him on that? To say not just, my will be done, but to say, Lord, what is your will in all of this? Can you form me? Can you shape me? And I think in the long run, to come to that place where you're actually prepared to say, an easier thing to say than often to live out, Lord, this is what I want. This is what I think I need. But if it isn't your will, I don't want it. Because if it isn't your will for you to give it to me would not be the best thing. And I say sometimes it's easy to start saying those words. It's really hard to get to that place where your heart is really bound up with it. Where you not only want to desire his will, but do desire that. The best model for me always of that kind of prayer is in our Lord himself. When we find him in Gethsemane you know that the beginning of the prayer that's recorded there is Jesus saying, Lord, if there is a way that this cup can pass, please let it pass. I don't know if he had seen firsthand in his day scourging and crucifixion. He certainly knew what it entailed, and nobody in his right mind would choose to go in that way. If it isn't what has to be done... Why would you go there? It's suicidal. It's worse than that. You can hardly begin to imagine just how horrible a way that would be to go. And yet, we know that Jesus has told his disciples, this is the way the Son of Man must go. And you might recall Caesarea Philippi, where he actually identifies this demonic temptation veering from that path. When Simon Peter says, no, 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 you'll never, that'll never happen to you. His response, get behind me, Satan. For all of that, though, in the garden, when it all comes down to those final moments, he opens up the human heart that says, Lord, this is overwhelming. Father, I, if there's any other way, I don't want to have to go this way, but I don't want anything that isn't your will. And not my 
will, but thine be done. And so he sets himself in the way, but he wrestles through, if you will. And I know on one level we say, this is God with us. Does he have to wrestle? I mean, he's got the Father's will as his own, but he's fully human. And that wrestling is part of what has to be there for all the children of God. We come with our needs. We come with those desires. We come with our perspective, but we seek his. We begin there. We seek to end with him in that full communion, not just communication, but full communion. All of that kind of lies behind the gospel that we heard today. I've reflected on the gospel. I've talked about it different times before. A story that is so easily misread by the modern reader. And always surprises me in a way because it's part of the ancient lectionaries. Those who were around the Anglican prayer book tradition know that it's there in the traditional lectionary. Not this time of year. It's a Lenten gospel. The church has reflected on it all along. The church has known how to deal with it. The modern reader looks and says, what's wrong with Jesus? Why is he treating the woman in this way? I've commented before on a feminist writer who actually has said, this woman was sent by God to Jesus to enlighten him, to kind of shake him out of his misogyny, his racism. He thought God only cared about the Jews. And here's a pagan woman He doesn't want anything to do with her. He calls her a dog. God works on him and Jesus starts to see, ah, okay, maybe God does care about these other people. Of course, then you have to think, maybe Jesus starts thinking, oh, perhaps I didn't come just to die for the Jews. Maybe I came to save the world. Go back to the fathers. Go back to St. John Chrysostom. Go back to St. Augustine of Hippo. And one of the things that they have to say is that from the beginning, Jesus isn't on trial. We come to the story, we know that this is God with us. He knows what he's doing. He is doing what is best. We don't always understand God's will, but we know that he knows what he's doing. He knows the woman's heart. When we look at the story, where are we in the story? What are we to learn from it? Well, are we like the disciples? Well, they don't stay very long. And they don't come off really well. Jesus has just been teaching them actually about not judging by the external things. He's been teaching them that what makes a man unclean is not what goes in from the outside, but what comes out of the heart. So do you really think he's going to judge this woman just on the outside? He also has just taken them up the way of Tyre and Sidon out of kind of Jewish territory. And I'll come back to that in just a moment. He doesn't respond to the woman, but then his disciples start grumbling. They don't say really, Master, do you not care about this woman? She's having such a rough go. Could you not attend to her? They say, Lord, would you get rid of her? She's crying after us. She's bothering us. Can you not get rid of her? And then they just sort of fade into the background and on we go. The woman comes to Jesus. The fathers say, She's the outsider, the one who has no claim in the promises of God. Well, that's like us. We're only in here by God's grace. She is a Canaanite. Mark calls her a Syrophoenician, but 
Well, what's Canaan? Canaan is the promised land. It's the land that Israel was led up out of Egypt to come into. Not simply as a, a gift to Israel, but they came as God's judgment upon the land, the people of the land, the gods of the land. The place was very much known for the worship of Baal and Asherah. Fertility gods and goddesses very much bound up with the earth and, and harvest rituals and things. Strong sexual connections and all of that. They had cult prostitutes, male and female. There was child sacrifice that was being practiced. This was not a, a nice state of affairs. This woman comes out of that. One of the best representations we might get in the effects on Israel of those of the Canaanites We've talked different times about King Ahab and Jezebel, those who were in the time of Elijah, who were, they were ruling over Israel. Ahab was the most wicked of Israel's kings, but his bride was even more so. Jezebel, where did she come from? Well, she was the daughter of the king of Sidon. Ooh, Jesus went up into Tyre and Sidon. She hated the Lord with a vengeance. She hated the prophets of God and all of the followers. She worked double time to try and eradicate from the land all of the worship of the Lord and to establish Baal worship. And so the great contest of Elijah on the top of Mount Carmel with more than 400 prophets of Baal. Here comes the Canaanite woman. She comes out of that background, no reason whatsoever to believe that she's a worshiper of the true God. Why is she coming to Jesus? Well, she's in desperate need. She needs a healer. She calls him son of David. She calls him Lord. But those are the titles that go with him. She's coming to get from him what she needs. Well, that one sounds familiar in prayer. The times that we come to God looking for what we need from him. And sometimes we bargain, sometimes we cajole, sometimes we threaten even. You know, it's sometimes, Lord, if you will do this for me, I will come to church. I'll come to daily mass, for heaven's sake. I will do all of my novenas. Sometimes we say, Lord, if you don't do this, then I won't do whatever. Okay, I'm looking for the guilty faces when I say that one. (laughs) I mean, we get angry sometimes. This woman is coming out of her need. And the intriguing thing is, when she beseeches Jesus, she prays before heaven, she's greeted with silence. It's strange in the story, but is there anyone among us who cannot tell me that there has been a time, at least once, where you have been really impassioned in prayer and you get no response, you get no answer, you can't hear anything. You're looking for direction and you don't get any. There's something really familiar in this one. And what does she do? Well, the fathers say, watch her, watch her. What do you do when you're stymied in prayer like that? She pushes on. She gets closer to Jesus. We're told that when he responded to his disciples and said, I'm only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, where she might well say, oh, and turn away. No, she has a righteous need. I know it's her need and it's what she thinks she really needs, but it is 
I mean, she's a mother. Her daughter is being tormented by a demon. She really cares. And she presses on. We're told that she knelt before Jesus. Now, the authorized version says she worshipped him. The verb that is there in the Greek is proskuneo, which is a standard verb for worshipping. But interestingly enough, it's derived from pros, which is the word for toward, you know, moving in the direction. And scholars think it's a derivative of kuon, which is the word for dogs. And the idea is that it's the attitude of the dog who comes and fawns before the master, who comes and crouches there. If you're around our little dog, well, if she'll grow close to you and and won't be too skittish with you, she starts to lick the hand. And that's the picture that is there. Think about that when you hear his response. Like the little dog who is coming to the master, trying to get his attention, to get his action. Well, he responds then with, it's not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. That's what we hear here. The word that's, there is not the kuon word, it's, it's from kunarian, kunari oi in the, the plural. It's the word for little dog, it's the diminutive form, more naturally referring to the, the puppies. Or if you want to contrast the wild dogs that are around the city, snatching whatever they can get, stooping in and stealing things, set against the little household dogs that, that might be, well, they're not really part of the family, but maybe some of you have a dog at home that gets called your little one and, and refers to the owners as mummy and daddy and you refer to your other children as the brothers and sisters and all of that. Well, that gets close to home. But our dog does not sit at the table and eat at the table. She doesn't get dressed in little clothes or something. The dog's not part of the family. But there's a, there's gentleness in that of one who might yet be around the household. You do remember Jesus saying on another occasion, do not give what is holy to the dogs or cast your pearls to the swine, to the pigs. And there's the whole idea that you don't give the things that you know the value of to the ones who don't understand what they are. Because they won't get the value out of it. They deprive you of it. They might hurt themselves in the process. They might even hurt you in response. You know, they'll, they'll trample it under feet. I mentioned my little dog. She knows nothing about writing on paper. If I drop a paper on the floor, she could walk all over it and get it dirty and messed up. But she also has this passion for scooping up bits of paper, especially if they're in the garbage, (laughs) and running off to a corner and chewing on them, maybe even eating them. I don't know why. (laughs) They don't stay down really well. But (laughs) there's no point in giving that paper to her that is valuable to us. She doesn't understand what she's getting. When we come to the things of our own faith, we know that there are pretty strong words in St. Paul about coming to receive the body and blood of Christ, not discerning the body, and it being actually spiritual danger. We don't have an open communion that those who come need to be prepared 
in all kinds of ways to receive that children's bread. But when pressed to the end, and and Chrysostom says, the woman needs this push from Jesus at that point, that she then lets go of herself completely. If she came thinking she could uh, talk him out of this gift, that she could get him to give her what she wanted, she now comes to that place where she says, yes, Lord, I have no claim. There's no reason that you have to do anything for me, but surely even the little dogs can gather up the crumbs that fall from the master's table. I'm not telling you you have to give me what I want, but could you give me what you can give me, what, what you're prepared to offer? And it's then that Jesus says, great is your faith. That's where you need to be. It's not just the attitude, though. It's at that point that she actually comes to Jesus. She's no longer focused as much on just the snatching what she wants as on receiving whatever he has for her. And I had started a bit of that mystery, you know, demonic possession. Where did the demon come from? Jesus warned about the unclean spirit that goes out of a man and wanders in the desert places comes back and finds the house swept and clean, brings seven more worse than itself with it, and then the later state of the man is worse. I don't believe that anything that's been cast out by the Lord can come back in, but what is this woman and her daughter, what are they going to fill their house with if they haven't come to Jesus, if they don't open their hearts and their home to the Lord? Where are they with that demon or any other that might be there? She can't have the children's bread. She can't have what Jesus has for her until she comes as the child. And that's always, for me, the great part of the story is that at the end, he doesn't just say, oh, well, okay, here are a few of the crumbs I'll scatter on the floor. The sense is that he gathers her in and offers children's bread. I don't know what happens with her afterwards. That's the Lord's business to sort that one out with her and her daughter. But there's something in her that we need to hear. We come as those from outside with no claim except what he gives us, except his grace. And his grace is not what we win as a reward, but what he gives us freely as a gift out of his love. He knows what we need. He knows our hearts more fully than we do ourselves. When we come trying to convince him of what the best thing is, well, he knows what the best thing is. The place we really need to end up in our prayer is where we are saying to him, Lord, here's my heart. Here's what I know. Here's what I need. I think what I really need is your perfect will. Lord, can you give that to me? Can you bring me to that point, though, where I don't just accept it because it's what you've given me, but that my heart is actually formed after your own, so what you have for me is what I desire. We do have a gift in the ordinary rite that comes from that Anglican patrimony, from the prayer book tradition. We have a prayer right before communion that is very much bound up with this gospel. It's what we call the prayer of humble access, just before receiving communion. We come to those words, we do not presume to come to this thy table, O Lord, 
trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. But then the line, we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table. We don't even come as those little dogs who think that, well, they can at least lick up the crumbs. Uh, Every now and again, something falls on the floor that, yes, the dog might have a right to, but it's not something I meant to let fall. (laughs) And I'm going to scoop that up before she gets it. But the following is, but thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. We don't claim it because we have a right to snatch it, but we claim it because he has promised it in Jesus Christ. Because he in his love has offered this to us. And if we're not overwhelmed by actually receiving his very body and blood, receiving the very life of heaven, into us, having the Holy Spirit dwell within us as in His temple, well, then we aren't coming as real children. Then we aren't coming as those who have let go of themselves, who know that they have no life apart from Him. The end of that particular prayer is that we might have all that He has for us, which is that new life in Him, that we may evermore dwell in Him and He in us. Amen. What's the end of our prayer? Surely it's to be gathered up in that perfect heart and mind and will of God, which is the heart of the kingdom. We begin where we are. We end where He is and where we are to be with Him, true sons and daughters of God.